Welcome to Fast Asleep. Whether you're here to embark on a beautiful night's sleep or just to listen to an exceptional story, it is very nice to have you with us. The author for our next three episodes, all one story, writes easily of upper middle class living in Tennessee, and he should. He was born in 1917. He is the grandson of Governor Robert Taylor. He writes indirectly about a time when rural country was becoming modern cities, when women were, oh, and this is not my word, destabilizing, Mm -hmm. and African Americans were challenging racial separatism. The story we chose for you now is Taylor's first to appear in a major literary journal. So let's tuck in and enjoy The Spinster's Tale. My brother would often get drunk when I was a little girl, but that put a different sort of fear into me from what Mr. Speed did. With brother, it was a spiritual thing, and though it was frightening to know that he would have to burn for all that giggling and bouncing around on the stair at night, the truth was that he only seemed jollier to me when I would stick my head out of the hall door. It made him seem almost my age to act so silly, putting his white forefinger all over his flushed face and finally over his lips to say, but the real frightening thing about seeing brother drunk was what I always heard when I had slid back into bed. I could always recall my mother's words to him when he was 16, the year before she died, spoken in her greatest sincerity, in her most religious tone. Son, I'd rather see you in your grave. Yet those nights put a scaredness into me that was clearly distinguishable from the terror that Mr. Speed instilled by stumbling past our house two or three afternoons a week. The most that I knew about Mr. Speed was his name. And this, I considered, that I had somewhat fabricated by allowing him the Mr in my effort to humanize and soften the monster that was forever passing our house on Church Street. My father would point him out through the wide parlor window in soberness and severity to my brother with, "Mm, there goes old speed again. Or on Saturdays, when brother was with the Benton boys and my two uncles, were over having toddies with father in the parlor. Father would refer to Mr. Speed's passing with a similar speech, but in a blustering tone of merry tolerance. There goes old Speed again, the rascal. These designations were equally awful, both 
spoken in tones that were foreign to my father's manner of addressing me, and not unconsciously, I prepared the euphemism, Mr. Speed, against the inevitable day when I should have to speak of him to someone. I was named Elizabeth for my mother. My mother had died in the spring before Mr. Speed first came to my notice on that late afternoon in October. I had bathed at four with the aid of Lucy, who had been my nurse, and who was now the upstairs maid, and Lucy was upstairs turning back the covers of the beds in the rooms with their color schemes of blue and green and rose. I wandered into the shadowy parlor and sat first on one chair and then on another. I tried lying down on the settee that went with the parlor set, but my legs had got too long this summer to stretch out straight on the settee, and my feet looked long in their pumps against the wicker arm. I looked at the pictures around the room blankly and at the stained glass windows on either side of the fireplace, and the winter light coming through them was hardly bright enough to show the colors. I struck a match on the mosaic hearth and lit the gas logs. Kneeling on the hearth, I watched the flames till my face felt hot. I stood up then and turned directly to one of the full-length mirror panels that were on each side of the front window. This one was just to the right of the broad window, and my reflection in it stood out strangely from the rest of the room in the dull light that did not penetrate beyond my figure. I leaned closer to the mirror, trying to discover a resemblance between myself and the wondrous Alice who walked through a looking glass. But that resemblance I was seeking, I could not find in my sharp features or in my heavy, dark curls hanging like fragments of hosepipe to my shoulders. I propped my hands on the borders of the narrow mirror and put my face close to watch my lips say, away. I would hardly open them for the uh, and then I would contort my face by the great opening I made for the way. I whispered, away, away. And I whispered it over and over, faster and faster, watching myself in the mirror. Away, 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 away. And suddenly, burst into tears and turned from the gloomy mirror to the daylight at the wide parlor window. Gazing tearfully through the expanse of plate glass there, I beheld Mr. Speed walking like a cripple with one foot on the curb and one in the street. And faintly, I could hear him cursing, cursing the trees as he passed them given each a lick with his heavy walking cane. Presently, I was dry-eyed in my fright. 
My breath came short, and I clasped the big black bow at the neck of my midi blouse. When he had passed from view, I stumbled back from the window. I hadn't heard the houseboy enter the parlor, and he must not have noticed me there. I made no move of recognition as he drew the draperies across the wide front window for the night. I stood cold and silent before the gas logs with a sudden inexplicable memory of my mother's cheek and a vision of her in her bedroom on a spring day. That April day, when spring had seemed to crowd itself through the windows into the bright upstairs rooms, the old-fashioned mahogany sick chair had been brought down from the attic to my mother's room. Three days before, a quiet service had been held there for the stillborn baby, and I had accompanied my father and brother to our lot in the gray cemetery to see the box large for so tiny a parcel, to see it lowered and covered with mud. But in the parlor now by the gas logs, I remembered the day that my mother had sent for the sick chair and for me, the practical nurse sitting in a straight chair, busy as busy at her needlework, looked over her glasses to give me some little instruction in the arrangement of my mother's pillows in the chair. A few minutes before, this practical nurse had lifted my sick mother bodily from the bed and I had had the privilege of rolling my mother to the big bay window that looked out ideally over the new foliage of small trees in our side yard. I stood self-consciously straight, close by my mother, a maturing little girl, awkward in my curls and long-waisted dress, my pale mother in her silk bed jacket with a smile leaned her cheek against the cheek of her daughter. Outside, it was spring. The furnishings of the great blue room seemed to partake for that one moment of nature's life and my mother's cheek was warm on mine. This I remembered when I sat before the gas logs trying to put Mr. Speed out of my mind, but that a few moments later my mother beckoned to the practical nurse and sent me suddenly from the room. Oh no, my memory did not dwell upon that. I remembered only the warmth of the cheek and the comfort of that moment. I sat near the blue burning logs and waited for my father and my brother to come in. When they came, saying the same things about office and school that they said every day, turning on lights beside chairs that they liked to flop into, I realized not that I was ready or unready for them, but that there had been within me an attempt at a preparation for such readiness. 
They sat so customarily in their chairs at first, and the talk ran so easily that I thought that Mr. Speed could be forgotten as quickly and painlessly as a doubting of Jesus or a fear of death from the measles. But the conversation took insinuating and malicious twists this afternoon. My father talked about the possibilities of a general war and recalled opinions that people had had just before the Spanish-American. He talked about the hundreds of men in the Union Depot. Thinking of all those men there, that close together, was something like meeting Mr. Speed in the front hall. I asked my father not to talk about the war, which seemed to him a natural enough request for a young lady to make. How is your school, my dear? He asked me. How are Miss Hood and Miss Heron? Have you found who's stealing the borders things, my dear? All of those little girls safely in Belmont school being called for by gentle ladies or warm-breasted servant women were a pitiable sight beside the beastly vision of Mr. Speed, which even they somehow conjured. At dinner, with Lucy serving and sometimes helping my plate because she had done so for so many years, brother teased me, first one way and all then another. My father joined in on each point, until I began to take the teasing very seriously, and then he told brother that he was forever carrying things too far. Once at dinner, I was convinced that my preposterous fears that brother knew what had happened to me by the window in the afternoon were not at all preposterous. He had been talking quietly. It was something about the meeting that he and the Benton boys were going to attend after dinner. But quickly, without reason, he turned his eyes on me across the table and fairly shouted in his new deep voice, I saw three horses running out on Harding Road today. They were just like the mules we saw at the mines in the mountains. They were running to beat hell and with little girls riding them. The first week after I had the glimpse of Mr. Speed, through the parlor window. I spent the afternoons dusting the bureau and mantel and bedside table in my room, arranging on the chase lounge the dolls, which at this age I never played with and rarely even talked to, or I would absentmindedly assist Lucy in turning down the beds and maybe watch the houseboy set the dinner table. I went to the parlor only when father came or when brother came earlier and called me in to show me a shin bruise or a box of cigarettes which a girl had given him. Finally, I put my hand on the parlor doorknob just at four one afternoon and I entered the parlor, walking stiffly as I might have done with my hands in a muff going into church. The big room with its heavy furniture and pictures showed no change since the last afternoon that I had spent there, unless possibly there were fresh 
antimacassars, those little ornamental coverings, on the chairs. I confidently pushed an odd chair over to the window and took my seat and sat erect. And I waited. My heart would beat hard when from the corner of my eye I caught sight of some figure moving up Church Street and as it drew nearer, showing the form of some person or neighbor, I would sigh from relief and from regret. I was ready for Mr. Speed and I knew that he would come again and again, that he'd been passing our house for inconceivable number of years. I knew that if he did not appear today, he would pass tomorrow. Not because I had accidental, unavoidable glimpses of him from upstairs windows during the past week, nor because there were indistinct memories of such a figure, hardly noticed, seen on afternoons that preceded that day when I had seen him stumbling like a cripple along the curb and beating and cursing the trees. Did I know that Mr. Speed was a permanent and formidable figure in my life, which I would be called upon to deal with? My knowledge, I was certain, was purely intuitive. I was ready now to face him with his drunken rage directed at me. But to look at him far off in the street and to appraise him. He didn't come that afternoon, but he came the next. I sat prim and straight before the window. I turned my head neither to the right to anticipate the sight of him, nor to the left to follow his figure when it had passed. But when he was passing before the window, I put my eyes full on him and looked. Though my teeth chattered in my head, and now I saw his face heavy, red, fierce, like his body. He walked with an awkward, stomping sort of stagger, carrying his gray top coat over one arm, and with his other hand he kept poking his walnut cane into the soft sod along the sidewalk. When he was gone, I recalled my mother's cheek again. But the recollection this time, though more deliberate, was dwelt less upon. And I could only think of watching Mr. Speed again and again. There was snow on the ground the third time that I watched Mr. Speed pass our house. Mr. Speed spat on the snow, and with his cane he aimed at the brown spot that his tobacco made there. And I could see that he missed his aim. The fourth time that I sat watching for him from the window, snow was actually fallen outside, and I felt a sort of anxiety to know what would ever drive him into my own house? Well, for a moment I doubted that he would really come to my door. But I prodded myself with the thought of his coming and finding me unprepared. 
and I continued to keep my secret watch for him two or three times a week during the rest of the winter. Meanwhile, my life with my father and brother and the servants in the shadowy house went on from day to day. On weeknights, the evening meal usually ended with oh, petulant arguing between two men. The atlas or the encyclopedia usually drawing them from the table to read out the statistics. Often brother was accused of having looking, looked them up previously and of maneuvering the conversation toward the particular subject where topics were very easily introduced and dismissed by the two. Once I sent, once I sent to the library to fetch a cigar, returned to find the discourse shifted in two minutes time from the Kentucky Derby winners to the languages in which the Bible was first written. Once I actually heard the conversation slip in the course of a small desert, Oh, sure. Desert? No. Desert. From the comparative advantages of urban and agrarian life for boys between the ages of 15 and 20, to the probable origin and age of the Icelandic parliament. Oh, and then to the doctrines of the Campbellite church. That night, I followed them to the library and beheld them finger in the pages of the flimsy old atlas in the light from the beaded lampshade. They paid no attention to me and little to one another, each trying to turn the pages of the book and mumbling references to newspaper articles from the library to the front parlor across the hall where I could hear the contentious hum. Oh, dear. And I lit the gas logs, trying to warm my long legs before them as I examined my own response to the unguided and remorseless bickering of the masculine voices. It was, I thought, their indifferent shifting from topic to topic, topic that most disturbed me. Then I decided that it was the tremendous gaps that there seemed to be between the subjects that was bewildering to me. Still again, I thought that it was the equal interest which they displayed for each subject that was dismaying. All things in the world were equally at home in their arguments. They exhibited equal indifference to the horrors that each topic might suggest. And I wondered whether or not their imperturbability was a thing that they had achieved. I knew that I got myself so accustomed to the sight of Mr. Speed's peregrinations, his walkings, persistent yet withal seemingly without destination, that I could view his passing with perfect equanimity. And from this I knew that I must extend my preparation for the day when I should have to view him at closer range. When the day would come, I knew that it must involve my father and my brother, and that his existence therefore must not remain 
an unmentionable thing, the secrecy of which to explode at the moment of crisis would only add to its confusion. Now, the door to my room was the first at the top of the long red carpeted stairway. A wall light beside it was left burning on nights when brother was out. And when he came in, he turned it off. The light shining through my transom was a comforting sight when I had gone to bed in the big room and in the summertime I could see the reflection of light bugs on it and often one would plop against it. Sometimes I would wake up in the night with a start and would be frightened in the dark, not knowing what had awakened me until I realized that brother had just turned out the light. On other nights, however, I would hear him close the front door and hear him bouncing up the steps. When I stuck my head out, out the door, usually he would toss me a piece of candy and he always signaled to me to be quiet. I had never intentionally stayed awake till he came in until one night toward the end of February of that year. And I hadn't been certain then that I should be able to do it. Indeed, when finally the front door closed, I had dozed several times, sitting up in the dark bed. But I was standing with my door half open before he had come a third of the way up the stair. When he saw me, he stopped still on the stairway, resting his hand on the banister. I realized that purposefulness must be showing on my face, and so I smiled at him and beckoned. His red face broke into a fine grin, and he took the next few steps, two at a time, but he stumbled on the carpeted steps. He was on his knees yet, with his hand still on the banister. He was motionless there for a moment, with his head cocked to one side, listening. The house was quiet and still. He smiled again, sheepishly this time, and kept putting his white forefinger to his red face as he ascended on tiptoe the last third of the flight of steps. And we'll stop right there for now. Good night.